Good evening. Fam, we doing okay? Yeah. I mean, anytime you have the kitchen, you got to be feeling pretty good, right? Hey, my name is Dallas. If I haven't met you, I'd love the opportunity after the service to meet you and get to know you just a little bit better. We are going to do sort of a a little bit different kind of thing over the next two weeks. It's going to be really one message, but over two weeks, we're going to look at the book of Ruth and we're going to do two of the four chapters tonight. And then next week, we're going to finish chapters three and four. So I'm going to leave you on a little bit of a cliffhanger here tonight, which doesn't, you know, kind of work out maybe the way that it used to. I mean, wouldn't you, wouldn't you love to have been a pastor before the printing press, right? You could just really leave people on a cliffhanger. Now you got, you know, your Bible, your Bible app, and you can check out how it ends. But we're going to be processing through the book of Ruth. And then in a couple of weeks, we're going to start a series called Deep Tracks Only, where in five weeks, we're going to look at five books of the Bible, and we're going to go through each book of the Bible. So by the end of it, you might be pretty close to a Old Testament credit. So that'll be really, really good. But um, hey, so let's go ahead and get into the book of Ruth. But in order to do that, we need to understand the book before that, the book of Judges. The very last line in it, Judges twenty-one twenty-five, says this. It says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. So that kind of tells you why there's a book of Ruth, and we're in this time period of Judges, and so everyone did as they saw fit. Now that's really important. It's, it's anarchy. It's desires and passions ruling the day. It's what everybody wants to do, they do, because there's no king. There's no authority structure. It's every kid's dream, right? To, to have no authority, just do whatever you want to do, whatever you think should be next. And it reminds me, yesterday we were in Gatlinburg, and one of my daughters, we went on one of those mountain coasters. Anybody ever done one of those? And all three of them absolutely loved it. And one of them came to me and said, Dad, can we live here? <laughs> and I'm like, what a terrible idea, right? I mean, you, you know, an hour later, you're going to get tired of being here and you're going to be looking for the next fun thing to move to, right? This is the way that we think often. What do I desire? What do I want to do right now in this moment? And I'm going to go do that. But it never leads to anything good because here's the thing. We talked a few months ago about our own little kingdoms, right? And, and if my kingdom and your kingdom clash, we have a problem. Everything's okay as long as people submit to my kingdom. And I'm sure everybody else feels the same way because here's the thing. Like, I feel like I should always have that last piece of chocolate cake, But get this, Morgan thinks she should have the last piece of chocolate cake. We got a problem. And now my girls are getting so ambitious that they think they should have the last piece of chocolate cake. So what do you do in that moment? And I think kingdom clashing, I mean, I know it's kind of a funny example, but I think kingdom clashing is where we get the vast majority of our issues through the years. You interfere with my kingdom, we have a problem, right? And so in order to function well as a society, we've got to come alongside of a larger kingdom with a king who's greater than just us so that now we have a kingdom in common. And at this time, it's very important to realize that in the book of Ruth, at this time, there is no authority structure. There is no king. There is no kingdom larger than everyone's own little kingdom. So... Let's get into the book of Ruth. We're going to do this. We're going to read through chapters 1 and 2, and I'm going to just stop and start along the way. So if you have your Bibles, Ruth chapter 1, 
We'll start in verse 1, and we'll go through 2.23. It says this, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. Yes, I practiced that word, Elimelech. And the names of his two sons were uh, Malon and Kilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Milan and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So, we'll stop there for a second. This is a pretty broken situation by any standard, right? But especially at this time, because there is no life insurance policy. There is no, you know, women in the workforce kind of thing. Right now, as, as tragic as it would be if something were to happen to me and Morgan would be devastated, she would have, you know, a life insurance policy that could take care of her. She'd have her business and things like that. At this time, they don't have that. And not only that, but because this devastation has hit their family, there's a thought process that maybe it's, it's her sin or maybe somebody in her family's sin. So she has to deal with all these different things during this tragic time, and that's very, very difficult to deal with. And she's in very bad shape in this culture at this time with no son to take care of her, with no husband to take care of her financially, she's in really bad shape. And this is also symbolic of where Israel is at this time. See, they don't really see a way forward. Everybody does the things that they want to do, and, and things aren't really working out. And a lot of people are wondering, where is God in all of this? I mean, where, where is our hope? How can, what can we even look forward to at this time? And maybe some of you have faced this in your life. That you just feel like, where is God right now? I mean, all these things are happening, and I, I just don't get it. I don't see the way forward. I don't see why this has happened, and I don't see the way forward. Where is God, and why isn't He working? Anybody been there? Yeah. And so this is very applicable to us, because if it hasn't happened in your life before, it undoubtedly will. So what do you do when that happens? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 6. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughter-in-laws prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the road of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness and as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more 
bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. I say this is probably very common to feel this way in this moment, that that because these things have happened in my life, it's probably because God has some disappointment in some of my decisions. Maybe if I hadn't have done blank, then maybe God wouldn't do this in my life. But the reality, though, is (laughs) we have a compassionate God who turns towards us and who weeps with us when we're mourning. I think the enemy loves to use that idea that God is is not with us in the moment of pain. But the reality is a Luke chapter 7 reality. If you remember the story where where Jesus sees this, this widow who's now lost her son, and she's just wailing, man. She's crying so, so hard. And it says that, she, that, that Jesus had compassion on her. And that word compassion in this context uh, doesn't mean just he, he felt like emotional, like empathy towards her. It was that he, he felt so much emotion that he felt it deep within himself, like in his intestines, in his bowels, he had so much compassion for her and this pain that she was going to and uh, going through. And then he says this: He says, "Woman, don't cry, don't cry." And then he resurrects her son in that moment. I mean, it's a profound compassion, deep within himself, that he has for people who are going through pain. And perhaps maybe he was thinking about his own mother. How she likely has lost Joseph by this time and knows that she's going to go through pain again when she loses Jesus shortly. Or maybe he's thinking about Naomi and Ruth and the pain that they've had to go through in order to establish the lineage leading to Jesus. Because as we'll find out next week, which, spoiler alert, (laughs) next week we find out that, that the lineage of Jesus comes through Ruth. And I think that's important to realize that, that Naomi's pain and Ruth's pain didn't become random, right? It wasn't just something that happened. God used it. God used that pain. I'm not saying he caused the pain, but he used the pain for good. He produces good from pain. God doesn't waste our pain. God cares, and he will produce good from it. And I think that's important for us to realize here tonight, that if you are currently going through a lot of pain, you should know, even if you can't see in this very moment, you should know that God will produce good from your pain. He always does. Verse 14, at this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. I love that detail, right? Man, what loyalty. Verse 19, so the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, 
because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Now, the term Naomi means pleasant. Mara is bitter or sad. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I found favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of the harvesters, Who does that young lady belong to? Translated, hey, is she single? Mm Mm-hmm. The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along with the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you, have, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. Sounds like a first date to me. What do you guys think? I don't know. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her and from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about an ephah. Matt, did I get that? Ephah? Yeah, okay. That's about a bushel or 35 liters. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also uh, brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. 
Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead, she added. That man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until, the, the, uh, until they finish harvesting all the grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvesters were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. It's the end of chapter 2 right there. So let's process a couple things here. Uh, according to Israelite law, a guardian redeemer was someone close to the family or in the family of the deceased that would then carry on the name of the deceased male. So the definition of a guardian redeemer is a rescuer or a deliverer. So Boaz could come in and he could restore the family name back to good standing under Elimelech. Um, It is not the guardian redeemer, though, that gets the credit. It is actually going back to the deceased. So what you have to have here is a very selfless person who's willing to give up his name on behalf of that deceased relative. That's a guardian redeemer. Somebody who really has compassion for the deceased and the living. Someone who really cared about the the man who died and also the family who's still living. So Boaz could potentially fill that role. But as I was reading about this, I couldn't help but think about how this comes full circle with Jesus. And we go to Luke chapter 20, and the Sadducees are, are, are coming at Jesus. You know, everybody's trying to trap Jesus, which is just a really bad idea, right? I mean, to try to trap. In fact, the Pharisees will, will one day realize, you know what, let's not ask him any more questions. We can't figure this thing out. But the Sadducees, they don't believe in a resurrection, so they try to trap Jesus by saying, okay, uh, a man dies, and his brother comes and is uh, a guardian redeemer for the brother. But then he dies, And then five more people do the same thing. So tell me, in heaven, who's the husband here? What's the relationship like with these men in heaven? And Jesus, he gives us uh, such a, a great statement here in Luke 20. He says this in verse 36 in part. He says, they are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. Meaning, he is the final guardian redeemer who will suffice for all time. That life and redemption will be found through Jesus Christ. And and your identity is really who you belong to. And that was always true through Israelite law, through the guardian uh, redeemer. And now we have identity through Christ as children of God. And man, that's really good news. And so, you know, in this situation, they're thinking, okay, I'm going to trap Jesus because the identity is this husband or this husband or this husband. But Jesus is saying, no, identity is found now through Christ. I am the final guardian redeemer. And there doesn't need to be another guardian redeemer again. And guys, tonight, he is our identity too. He is our identity. Our guardian redeemer has come and we are forever redeemed. So, tonight as we get back into worship, I'd love for us to just proclaim that truth. That God, you are so great, 
you are our final guardian redeemer. I mean, we don't have to be in a situation like Naomi was in of just sad and bitter and hopeless and I don't even know where I go from here because there's just no hope. I mean, there's no future. I just, you know, my name was pleasant. I was in a good situation and now it's over. We never have to have that feeling again because Christ has come. He is our guardian redeemer and for all time that will be our identity. So I don't know how you come in here tonight. But I do know that everything will be okay for all time because we have a guardian redeemer named Jesus and our eternity is secure with him forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the truth of your word. We thank you so much how just everything kind of connects, you know, through the scriptures that we, we see uh, in the Old Testament, we see Jesus concealed, and in the New Testament, we see Jesus revealed. And so we go back and we, we see these stories, and we see with great hope and anticipation that, um, that everything comes back to Jesus. And so we thank you that you have made a way that redemption is found in your name, And no longer do we have to search, you know, is it through here? Do I need to find this situation or this person or whatever that you have extended yourself to us for all time? And so here tonight, if there are those who are burdened, and I know that there's burdens in this room, I pray that you'll liberate those burdens. I pray that you'll take them because you want to take them. And I pray that there will be peace In your name, our great guardian, redeemer, for all time. We love you very much. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship.